my name is Aubrey. Um, I am a Covenant community member here at The Well. Um, I am a recent um, CG shepherd. I co-shepherd with my friend Caroline and the Sows um, for the new Cedar Park Leander CG. <laughs> We're small and we would love to have y'all if you're looking for a home. <laughs> Um, I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and, came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of the Lord. For those in this room who I, who I have not met yet, there's really only one thing that you need to know about me and to understand who I am. I am a walking, living, breathing Texas stereotype. How many, how many of y'all in here are not from Texas? A good amount, a good amount. Everything that you thought about a person from Texas before you moved here is probably true about me. See, I was born and raised here. I can trace my lineage back sixth and seventh generations of people who are from Texas. In fact, my name, if you can go back a second, you're ruining my joke. Uh, <laughs> that's what's great. You can make people laugh even when you miss your punchline, right? <laughs> my namesake was the national surveyor of Texas when Texas was still a country of its own opponent by Stephen F. Austin. I am a Texas stereotype. Both of my sides of my family are involved in agriculture. My mom's side of the family owns a cattle ranch in West Texas of all places. I'm a Texas stereotype. I ride horses. My wife rides horses. My children will and have ridden horses. In fact, I have ridden a horse to a job that I was paid to do while riding a horse. I am a Texas stereotype. I make incredible chili. I make really good salsa. I chose my college based partly on the fact that it's successful in football. This is my groomsman cake for my wedding. You can laugh at it now. It has the hat that I wear every day with my ranch brand. It has the state of Texas flag on it. I'm too proud of being from Texas. I mean, it's hard not to be. I mean, it's not like I'm from some random state like Michigan, right? Like, I mean, look at how I dress. I'm wearing a starch shirt. I can venture that I'm the only person that has ever preached in front of this shirt that has not worn an early edition pair of Jordans. I, I mean, 
I mean, they're like, Jacob, you're preaching at the well. You got to wear J's. The only J's I have are 2012 Justins, right? (laughs) I'm a Texas stereotype and that's okay. But you know, as I'm standing up here, there's one thing that could blow that whole image of me. There's one thing that I'm actually a little bit nervous. I feel some shame actually talking about this. It's gonna take a lot of vulnerability. I may not do it. Well, I have to, because it's a transition to my next point. But (laughs) guys, I never played high school football. (sighs) That's what I was worried about. I never played high school football. I missed out on this ritual of manhood for Texas boys. And you know, it's not because I didn't think I should. And it's definitely not because I didn't think I could. I mean, look how amazing of an athletic specimen I look, right? And it's not that I didn't think that it was good. I mean, I wanted the memories. I wanted the camaraderie. But my high school didn't have a team. My high school didn't have a team. Have you guys ever felt like you missed out on something important? Have you guys ever felt like that in your spiritual life, that there's something that should be true of you that isn't? Have you ever missed out on something that you felt like was true of Jesus, and because you're missing out, you don't connect with him on an intimate level as much? For most of us, what I've found is that Christians are missing out on something good. And that something good is evangelism. The Barna Research Institute is a group that did a survey of Christians in terms of their beliefs about evangelism. And what they found is that 94% of Christians believe that they should share their faith. 76% said that they could, meaning they felt confident enough or had enough base level training that they can engage in it. But this is the statistic that's a little bit scary. They found that 47% of millennial Christians that they surveyed believed that evangelism was not good. They should, the Bible says, they could with confidence, but they believe it wasn't good. Man, that's dangerous. That's dangerous for a church, especially for a church like us, which is young, that might have a lot of millennials. Because what that's saying is that something that was an integral part of Jesus' life is not good. But I don't want that to be true of us. I want us to believe that evangelism is something we should do. I want us to give us something practical that it could be something we could do. And I want us to experience the goodness of evangelism so we could have deeper intimacy with Jesus and we could see what he wants to do through our lives. So how do we do that? The first passage we're gonna look at today is Ecclesiastes 11.6. It says, sow your seed in the morning and at evening let your hands not be idle for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that or will both will do equally well. Now, this passage isn't overtly an evangelism verse. It's a wisdom verse that that King Solomon wrote, but I think it gives us some good understanding of what evangelism is. And mainly it's that, that, hey, with anything worth doing, you have to scatter lots of seed because you don't know what actually will take. I told you I was a Texas stereotype, right? Cattle ranching on my mom's side. My dad was an ag. My dad was a farmer for most of his professional career. What type of farmer, you say? He was a grass farmer. (laughs) 
Most of you are like, that's made up. You're like, hey, Jacob, you said your dad. Every dad is a grass farmer because a grass farmer is called the front yard. It's like, no, that's not true. It's not some kind of new urban farming. You can add your LinkedIn. It's like, hey, I'm a code programmer at Dropbox. I like indie music and I'm an urban grass farmer. That's, that's not what that is. Hey, where do you think your front yard came from? It came from my dad's grass farm. Now going out there occasionally and helping him, there were different seasons on the grass farm. We would go out in a specific season and we would scatter seed. We wanted a specific field to have a specific type of grass. We would scatter seed there. If we wanted another field to have another specific type of grass, we would scatter seed there. And then we would wait for that grass to grow. Now when it came time to harvest, we would take a specific machine, we would go out, we would cut little pieces of grass. For anybody that's ever had a a home and you've delivered it, you see those little rectangular squares of grass. But the thing that I remember is after every time we would cut those little pieces of grass before we would go into the next field, we would have to take it back to the shop and spray it down thoroughly because we didn't know if there were pieces of seed or grass that would fall into another field. We didn't know what would grow and what wouldn't. The same is true of ministry. The same is true of evangelism. And that's kind of the title of our talk. If you sow the right seeds, if you sow the right seeds in the right places, you will see the ripe fruit. If you sow the right seeds in the right places, you will see the ripe fruit. As Tori mentioned, we are in a one-place series specifically focused on evangelism. And the last two weeks, Tori has talked about the need to have a place that you share the gospel. He's talked about uh, last week the need for prayer and how we involve the power of God in that process. Well, today I want to finish out uh, two of the remaining items, which is, hey, in order to have successful sowing of evangelism and be able to see the ripe fruit, we need to meet people and we need to proclaim the gospel. Now, if you're anything like me, Evangelism was always reserved for varsity. That is a wrong view. That is a wrong view. If you're anything like me, you were probably overfed and underchallenged when it came to evangelism. See, I knew probably that I should. I really wasn't confident that I could. And honestly, I would say, hey, for me personally in my life, it probably wouldn't do good things for me. I was afraid. Am I qualified because of sin in my life, the things that I've done, the things that I haven't overcome, the things maybe that I'm not doing that go with the varsity level Christians? Am I qualified? Do I really want to put my reputation on the line? What is this going to say about me if I'm the one engaging in deep spiritual truths with people? Are people going to talk about me? Are they going to blow me off? Are they going to reject me? I wasn't really sure if I should. I didn't know if I could, and I wasn't convinced that it was good. A friend of mine changed my life when it came to evangelism. He said, Jacob, what if instead of focusing on the fears around evangelism, you focused on the fruit? What if instead of focusing on the fears that are keeping you from potentially doing this, that you think about the fruit that God could do in your life and through your life? And that's what we're going to do tonight, because I want it to be known that everyone in this room 
could experience fruitful evangelism by sowing these two seeds, meeting lost people and sharing the gospel. And so the first seed we're going to look at is, the, is to scatter the seeds of relationships with lost people. The first seed that we need to scatter to see fruitful evangelism is relationships with lost people. In that same survey I mentioned earlier, they found that 76% of Christians who do share their faith share with their friends, which makes sense. I know them. I'm comfortable. There's a, a track record that this person may not persecute me. They may not reject me. They may not run me off. There's a little bit of fear there, but it's like, hey, I have a relationship with this person. 76% of people believe that if they share the gospel, they'll do so with their friends. A buddy of mine uh, is, uh, is a church planning intern in Fort Worth. And um, as part of his church plant, he's starting several groups that we have here. They're called DMIs. I'll talk about them in a second. And the whole point of that is getting people past the could and the good part of evangelism. Actually, one of the church interns uh, who's not going with the church plant but wanted to grow in this area decided to join the group. And as they were trained and as they looked in the scriptures, as they prayed and built conviction, they sent people out. Hey, share the gospel one time this week. She was excited. She left. She came back a little bit discouraged. Now, in a non-shame environment, they were able to give her grace and courage and say it happens. And they were able to process and think through what next steps could be. They gave her the same application. She went out. She came back again discouraged. And as they begin to think through, hey, what's going on? You, you know you should. You feel like you can. feel like you could. What's going on? And she came to this realization. I don't have any lost friends. And for most of us, that's probably true. Before we came to Christ, we probably had lots of lost friends. But we wouldn't consider them friends anymore. We probably know lost people, or we probably work with lost people. But we don't have many lost friends. You know, my buddy told me one time, he said, hey, if you don't have lost friends, you don't have enough friends. If you don't have lost friends, you don't have enough friends. We can't reach the lost like our church's distinctive says unless we meet the lost. We can't reach the lost unless we meet the lost. You can't see ministry fruit unless you sow relationships with the lost. And Jesus was the master at making friends with the lost. In Matthew 9, 9, we see as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. A tax collector back then was a a detestable person. They were despised. They were cheats. They were social outcasts because they were taking money from their own people and giving it to a governing body that no one liked. And all of that, they were actually banned from the temple. So they were physically separated from the spiritual worship of their God. They were lost. We see that Jesus goes on in verse 10 through 11. He says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. You can see the emphasis in Jesus and the writer of Matthew and even the Pharisees' language to highlight this sick and sinners. That word sinners, it just means someone that's devoted to sin. 
It means they've given everything they have to sin. Sin is their master. They're addicted to it. They can't stop. The word sick is just means diseased. It means something is wrong with them. Something is eating them from the inside. I told you I was a Texas stereotype. In high school, the cool thing to do as freshmen were to get in the back of the bus before baseball practice and put a dip in. I told you I'm a Texas stereotype. For those of you who don't know a dip, it's a piece of back and put it in your lip like this. You can't really talk about that. And every time someone would do that for the first time, they would throw up everywhere. But it became an identity thing. If older guys are doing it, we got to do it in Texas and be awesome. And they would continue to do it until it became something they had to do. After a, di- after a great meal, I gotta put a dip in. If I'm studying, I gotta put a dip in. If I'm playing baseball, I gotta put a dip in. If I'm driving, I gotta put a dip in. Everything was about putting a dip in. One of my friends was stepping foot at the tee box on the first hole of a golf course. He was playing with some of his dad's friends who he had heard about but hadn't met yet. Of course, what'd he do? Put a dip in. And from behind him, he heard one of his dad's friends who he hadn't met yet say, hey, can I have one? Sure, Texas stereotype, I'm polite, have one. And as he turned around to give it to him, he froze. Fearing the social awkwardness, he kind of gave it to him and kind of turned around real quick, didn't want to stare. And the buddy says, man, I can't quit this stuff. I'm addicted to it. Turn around, my buddy was like, oh yeah. His dad's friend goes, be careful with it. And as he turned back around, he realized that his dad's friend's half his jaw was missing because he had jaw cancer from chewing tobacco. Sin will take more of you than you were willing to give. Sin will take more of you than you're willing to give. Later in Matthew 9, Jesus comes before a group of people that he's doing ministry with And it gives a really intimate look at how he sees their spiritual life. It says that he's overwhelmed by compassion. Tori talked about this last week, and it uses two specific words. It says harassed and helpless. That's how he sees their spiritual life. They are harassed and helpless. Harassed means they're thrown down and trapped, and helpless means they're powerless to do anything. That's the way lost people are. They're devoted to sin. Their spiritual life is dead. They are pinned down, and they're unable to do anything. It's kind of hard to believe, but in a few weeks, we're going to celebrate the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And every year, I try to read a story or watch a video just to kind of remember. I was in seventh grade at the time. And just remember this kind of key and important moment in our history. And one of the things I always come back to is this specific story. Here's a picture of it. A building has just fallen down. They are covered in concrete They are broken, they are fearful, they are dying. And one thing that the people in Manhattan realized 20 years ago that they hadn't really thought about or affected them on a day-to-day basis is that when those towers went down and people fled to get out of the way, Manhattan's an island. Airports are shut down, subways are closed, bridges are shut down, there's no way off. These people who are harassed, pinned down, They're helpless to do anything about their situation. That is the way the majority of the world lives its life. Harassed and helpless. But we see Jesus has compassion on these people. In Matthew 9, 13, he says, I did not come for the righteous but the sick. 
Luke 19.10 says he came, Jesus, came to seek and to save what was lost. You know the irony of these conversations is he's having them with the Pharisees, who though they weren't culturally offensive like the tax collectors, were just as offensive to God. And they needed, just to, they needed Jesus just as much, but they were unaware of it. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And all of us, all of us in this world are born lost and separated from God. So what did Jesus do to sow relationships? What did he do to make friends with lost people? I'll give you a few things. We see, you can go ahead and change slides. The friendship seeds that he sowed. In Matthew 9, we see as Jesus went on, the Pharisees noticed how Jesus spent his time. It says, as he went on, Jesus was investing time. The Pharisees noticed that he was spending time with lost people. So if we want to meet lost people, we need to sow the seed of time. We need to sow the seed of time. You can go ahead and hit the slide. We need to sow the seed of time. You know who I think of? I think of Will Simmons and his wife. They moved to a strategic place to pray over the people there, and they've invested significant time over the last few weeks going door-to-door in their apartment complex, meeting individual people. They wanted to meet people in their apartment complex because they wanted to build relationships with lost people. What do we do next? We see in the passage, it says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not for the healthy who need a doctor, but for the sick. Jesus is intunely aware of people's need. The second way we sow friendship seeds is not just with time, but with trust. We know what people's needs are. We listen. In fact, we become great question askers. Jesus asked over 300 questions in the Gospels. And when they answered, he would follow up with another 180 questions. Jesus cared intimately about other people because he knew the nature of a human, which is our favorite subject to talk about is ourselves. Andrew Carnegie, in fact, said this. A person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. When we meet lost people, it's not just face-to-face meeting with them. We need to write down what they say. We need to ask them intently about our life, find ways that we can meet needs, show that we care about them, and remember their names. Remember their names. The last thing we see in Matthew 9, 11, if we look at the passage, is we see that while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Jesus got together with his disciples uh, friends that he met outside of just the area that he met them. Pro tip, your dining room table will almost certainly be your best evangelistic tool that you ever have. Invite people into your home. Invite people to do live things with you. I think of Laura Oberski. She sent this text to my wife a couple days ago, my wife had set up a little play date with her, and she said, hey, just, to, you know, just so you're aware, the person from the place that I've met is going to be here. I want to get some more time with them. I would love for you to meet them. She's getting together. And for those that you don't know, like, being a mom and doing ministry is incredibly difficult. I have two little parasite, uh, preschoolers, <laughs> and, and they are very difficult 
to lug around and meet people who aren't used to you. But I'm so proud of Laura because she's using the things that are naturally a part of our life to not only build relationships but get together with people. You see, if you want to see fruit, you must sow friendship seeds with the lost. We need to meet lost people and build friendships. But fruitful evangelism won't come simply from hanging out with new friends. How can we see these new friendships come to faith? The second seed that we must scatter to experience fruitful evangelism is the gospel. Continuing in Matthew 9, 9, follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed Jesus. What is Jesus doing here? He's asking a lost person to make a decision about who they are and who Jesus is and immediately apply that decision. Follow me in the Greek, it's two root words. One means union and one means road. Jesus asks us and asks Matthew to say, hey, change and turn from the direction, the path you're going and get on the path with me and trust that I will make your life fruitful and enjoyable and you will experience the things in this world that the world can only lie about. Follow me, Jesus says. Jesus is sharing the gospel. In fact, the word gospel in the Greek is evangelion. It's where we get the word evangelism. It means good news. The gospel is good news to lost people, despite what you may think. What is the good news? The good news is that though man is sinful and eternally separated from God, Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection of life eliminates the sin that was keeping us from God. His righteousness covers us so that we can be reconciled in a relationship with our creator. That is good news. I said I'm a Texas stereotype. This may burst that bubble. I grew up a major fan of Michael Jackson. (laughs) Music, Michael, not personal life, Michael, let's be clear. On the day that he died, my girlfriend at the time, Alana, who's now my wife. I guess I could have said ex-girlfriend, that's kind of true too. She's from California, again, breaking the Texas stereotype. But I wanted her to go to the funeral. You see, this is something that I'm going to be, again, vulnerable. I'm pretty insecure, so I always like to call things, you know, like NCAA brackets, calling upsets. I always like to call the ridiculous because just in case it happens, I'm right. And so I said, hey, I don't think Michael's dead. So as I'm driving to my ranch, again, Texas stereotype with my friends during the summer, I pull into a town called Junction, Texas. Some of you are like, I know where that is. It's good. Not many people do. Uh, and as I'm, my friends get out of the car, as I step out of my truck, again, Texas stereotype, I get a text from Alana with three words. He is alive. (laughs) Instantly, every thought in my mind shifts from what I'm supposed to be doing to like, I knew it. This is a ploy to his new tour. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, 
I, he's, you know, the, 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 the ceremony's going on and all of a sudden the music stops, thriller happens, Michael jumps out. All the other zombie thriller dancers jump out and they just start going nuts, right? Greatest couture kickoff ever. So what do I do? I can't just let that news sit. I got to tell my friends I was right. I run into this random gas station, throw open the door, and I go, Michael is alive! (laughs) They weren't as excited as you guys are. As I'm trying to convince them that this is all true, I get another text with two words. Just kidding. (laughs) Thank the Lord that Junction only has 30 people in it. (laughs) I'll never see any of these people again. But you know what I realized in that moment? When people believe they have good news, they'll share it as broadly as possible. It pains me to say this, but oftentimes I reflect and realize I was more energetic to tell people about a fake story of a dead celebrity than about the resurrection of the God of the universe. Jesus shared the gospel because it was the good news that the world and everyone in it needed to hear. So what is evangelism? What is sharing your faith? Sometimes that can get really muddled. We don't really know what it is. I want to provide clarity to that. There are lots of good things that get misconstrued with what evangelism is that are good but aren't what evangelism is. A couple of those things. Good things, not evangelism. Hey, I'm just going to live a really godly life. You know the bumper sticker is like, I share the gospel often, but only sometimes I use words. That is not evangelism. (laughs) Maybe it's inviting people to church, a Bible study, or event. Good thing. Not evangelism. Maybe it's um, having a really deep apologetic conversation, or maybe it's having some general conversations about God. Not evangelism. Good things, good things. Not evangelism. Here's a definition of evangelism. It's intentionally sharing the gospel and presenting someone with a decision to follow Jesus. You're asking them to repent and believe in Jesus. That's what Jesus said. He's like, I came to call sinners to repentance. Now, here's something you gotta understand. We scatter these seeds, right? Friendships in the gospel, and we pray that they take hold. God is the one that makes them grow. We cannot bring a dead person back to life, only God can. But somehow in this tension of how he built the world and how he uses us, he wants us, as Jesus did, to present an opportunity to someone. Let's look at Jesus' life with Matthew. Imagine if he had walked up to the tax collector's boot. I was like, hey, tax collector, huh? Gosh, that's a hard job. Not as hard as being the creator of the universe, but hard. <laughs> hey, dude, I know things are tough. If you ever need anything, my dad has a hookup. Let me know. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do that. He says, no, you need to make a decision about your life in comparison to who you are and who I am, and you need to hop on board or not. We give people an opportunity to decide about Jesus, to follow him. 
Now, as I went through this whole process of is evangelism something I should do? Is it something I could do? Is it something that's good? I always come back to the could part. There's a crazy ratio about evangelism. It's science, actually. The more you share the gospel, the more people come to faith. <laughs> right? The more you share the gospel, the more people come to faith. For me, I knew that I should. I knew that that would happen. The Bible promises that. But I didn't think I could because I didn't know where to start. This reminds me of someone in our church named Andrew Davis. Andrew felt the conviction that this should be part of his life and he was missing out. But he didn't know how. So he joined a group called a DMI where he would be forced to learn how and then forced to implement the practicality of what he was learning. And over the last couple weeks, Andrew has seen people come to faith. So much so that he's hooked. Now he's leading a DMI for similar people just like him who know they should, who don't know if they could, but want to experience how evangelism is good. Man, I'm so proud of Andrew. I'm proud that he's a member of our church and excited for how he's going to implement this one place series. Now, I'm not gonna walk through a method. We don't have enough time. In fact, on Wednesdays at your community group, that's gonna be the primary thing that we do. We are going to walk through a method so that you can feel confident in sharing your faith. But I wanna give you a couple tips. A couple tips. Gospel seeds that we can sow. One, choose a line. And two, use a method. Choose a line and use a method. What do I mean by that? A lot of people, what holds them up from sharing with their lost friends is they don't know how to get into a gospel conversation. I'm going to give you one that's easy. I use it all the time. As we have built trust and spent time and gotten together, we know about their lives, and it's really easy. I can lean over to the person and say, hey, in this season of life, do you feel close to God or far from God? In this season of life, do you feel close to God or far from God? No matter what they answer, I'm in. Now, you can share your testimony. There's a three circles. Uh, I was trained on the Romans 623 illustration or the bridge. If any of y'all ever seen it, that's kind of my preferred method. I know multiple, but start with one. And we're going to practice it this week. Be confident. Know that that is the power of God which uh, brings salvation to everyone who believes. It can save their eternity. Pick a line, choose a line, and use a method. And if you want to see fruit in your evangelism... You must sow gospel seeds with your lost friends. Meeting new people and sharing the gospel is intimidating, which is why not many Christians decide to do it. But if we sowed seeds like Jesus, what fruit could be produced in someone's life? I'm going to go back to the 9-11 story. As those harassed and helpless people were 30 deep and a mile wide on the edge of Manhattan Harbor, the Coast Guard, the professionals, the people that are supposed to know what to do in this moment were understaffed and overwhelmed. They knew that there were hundreds of thousands of people that needed help and there wasn't much they could do. So in a midst of an extreme situation, they made a very rash call. They got on the radio and they said, anyone who is willing and able to come across the Hudson, anyone that has a boat, please come. 
We need help. There are people that need help. And what followed was the largest maritime evacuation in history. 500,000 people were taken off of Manhattan, which was a war zone at the time, and taken across the Hudson River, not by professionals, but by everyday people who were willing and able to do something they knew they should. They had the capability of doing what they could, and they knew it would lead to good. Evangelism is not for the professional Christians like myself and Tori. In fact, if you leave it up to us, we will not plant 100 churches domestically. We will not plant 100 churches internationally. We will not push back darkness, and we will not reach the lost of this city. It's not on me. It's on all of us. A hero of mine named C.T. Studd, incredible name, not a Texas stereotype, but it could be. He was a professional sports player in the early 19th century. And he said this, some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Yeah. CT stud. What does it take for someone to have a conviction like that? To see the lost as Jesus sees them with compassion to see people as harassed and helpless with no eternal hope and know that my responsibility as a follower of Christ is to take this message which someone probably brought to me to another person. Mark 4.20 says, Others like seeds sown on good soil hear your word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Some will repent from sin. And follow Jesus. And that sown seed of the gospel will land on their hearts and God will make them alive. And he will use their redeemed life to produce an even greater harvest for the kingdom in the lives of people that we who share the gospel may never ever meet. What if we had this same compassion like Jesus? What if we remembered the pain, the loneliness, the anxiety, the joylessness, the purposelessness that we felt as lost and remember that the millions and billions of people around the world who don't know Jesus feel that exact same way? What if we truly believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was actually the only remedy that these people needed? What if we saw people with the eternal perspective of someone like C.T. Studd? You know who he'd end up like? Rudy Littler. Rudy Littler. Someone none of you know. He moved to Waco, Texas, found a place at a local high school, began to be present, began to pray that people would come to faith. He began to meet different people and he began to proclaim the gospel. He began to sow seeds of friendships with the lost and scatter gospel seeds into those relationships. And my senior year, as the resume of my college application did not fulfill me like I thought and the things that I was engaged in were unfulfilling, I feel like I had been lied to, I feel like there was not hope in the world, he presented me with the gospel truth and told me that I was sinful and separated from God. And the value I was trying to find in the opinions of other people was found in the creator of the world who loved me and showed me that I was valuable by sending the most precious resource, which was the blood of Jesus. And I decided to turn from my sin and trust in Christ. 
You know who I think of? I think of Blake Chrisman. As I went to college, I met a guy named Blake who picked a place on my college, who began to pray that God would raise up soft hearts. He began to be present in the organization. He began to meet people, and he began to share the gospel. And as I saw him do this, I realized that was missing from my life. It's something I should be doing, that I could be doing, and I was missing out on something good. He challenged me. He taught me how to do it. He began to take me with him. I learned how to scatter seeds of friendships and begin to scatter seeds of the gospel. I moved to Austin. Intrinsically, it's built in my life. I think through a specific place. I have a place on UT's campus that for the last six years, I've been praying that God would do something in me and through me as I'm in present in this place. I began to meet people, hundreds of people over the years, and I began to proclaim the gospel, scattering seeds of friendships with the lost, and scattering the gospel. And over time, God has done immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine. I come into last fall, and everything is different. There's barriers to get to the same people in the same ways. This is Jesus' method of ministry. I had to overwhelmingly convince myself over and over again, this is going to be difficult But I believed it, scattering seeds of friendships with the lost and sharing the gospel. So I would do anything I could. I would buy Torchy's queso and I would call guys to lure them out of their dorm room (laughs) so that I could hand them some food so I could get five minutes with them where I could just connect, where I could build some trust, get some time, and get together. And last year I met a high school hero from Flower Mound named Garrett Carbs. And Garrett and I began to hang out. We began to hunt together, Texas stereotype. We began to eat together. He came to a Bible study. In October, I took him to Torchies. Again, God does amazing things there. (laughs) And as we had built a friendship, as I had scattered those seeds, I knew that it was time. I gave him the line. Hey, in this season, freshman year, pandemic, do you feel far from God or close to God? He said, I feel far from God. So what did I do? I showed him the same illustration I show everyone on a receipt. And I know what you're thinking. That looks like a five-year-old wrote it. (laughs) And it just goes to show God's power that even in an illegible note on the back of a receipt, Carbs realizes his depth of sin, his need for Jesus, that he cannot impress God with the righteousness of his life, and he turns from sin and trusts in Christ. Over the last several months, Garrett and I have spent more time together helping him grow, establish him in his faith. And you know what we did this last week? We found a place. We began to pray that God would do something in us and through us in that place. We began to meet people. We began to sow seeds of friendships with the lost in the hopes that in the next two to three weeks, we'll get to proclaim the gospel and share the gospel with them. Sow the right seed in the right place and see the ripe fruit. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much that you take a broken, rebellious person like myself and even everyone in this room and you can make us look more like Jesus, that we can engage in the mission of your kingdom, that we can share the gospel. God, that we can see fruit, not only in our life, but in the lives of people around the world who don't know you.
God, I pray that people would learn these practicalities, that they would get convicted that they should, that this week they would leave feeling like they could, and that they would have a desire that evangelism is good. I pray that we would leave today with a desire to be a part of what you're doing in our church and in Austin and around the world. Amen.